first of which is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And our second reading will be from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. I want to speak tonight on how to pray when you are in trouble. How to pray when you're in trouble. We've been looking at these 53 words that Jesus gives us in the Lord's Prayer, which have the potential to transform our world. And right at the end of this prayer, just as Jesus comes uh, to this plea to the Father, we have, um, give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Right at the climax of this prayer, 12 words. Words which have the power to protect us. Words which have the power to protect our church, our families, our friends, our actual lives, our hopes. Words which have the potential to shape our hearts and our minds and keep us from falling prey to temptation. Words which invite, actually almost command heaven to intervene on our behalf, to send its help, to protect us, to rescue us, to guard us and deliver us from evil. And that's both uh, really concerning and really exciting. It's really concerning because if Jesus tells you, you have to pray, deliver us from evil, you're going to face some evil in your life. Just putting it out there right at the start, just so you know, so you're not panicked. Uh, Jesus only tells you to do stuff which you need to do. So if Jesus is saying, pray, deliver us from evil, you're going to need to pray, deliver us from evil. So it's a little bit concerning. But it's also really exciting because the one who gives us that prayer knows that we have a heavenly father who is eager to respond to those words and he has power to help. So the first thing we see in these passages is don't be surprised when you're facing trouble. Maybe you're facing a test or trouble right now. Maybe you feel like you're holding on by your fingertips. Maybe it's just been a difficult season in your life. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray right at the start of his public ministry. He's baptized. And then after his baptism, he's led into the wilderness to be tempted. And then after that, he begins 
his public ministry, he begins to teach. And that is where these 12 words are find, found. So just after he's been tempted by the devil, obviously fresh in his mind, he tells us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And lots of commentators point out that this word, this phrase for uh, testing and for temptation, uh, periasmos, it means like a difficulty, a challenging situation. It can mean a test or a temptation. And when Jesus tells us to, to pray, lead us not into temptation, he's not saying you know, that, that God might tempt us. It says in James 1, God doesn't tempt anyone. Lots of commenters say it's almost like God wants to use tests to refine us and to strengthen us. But we have an enemy who wants to turn those tests into temptations, to undermine us and to weaken us and to try and destroy us. He wants to turn our tests into temptations. And so what we're praying almost is in our testing, let us not be tempted. Just because you face tests in life doesn't mean that God is unhappy with you. It doesn't mean God is displeased with you. It doesn't mean you've done something wrong. It doesn't mean you've offended God. Jesus, at his baptism, hears the words of his father over him. This is my son, whom I love, in whom I'm well pleased. And then the very next thing that happens is the spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tested, to be tempted. So if Jesus, who lives a perfect life, faced tests and temptations, then don't worry if you're having a difficult season. Don't worry if you're facing troubles and tests. The only time to really worry is if your life is amazing and nothing ever goes wrong. Then you're in trouble. But normally, you're in a good place if things are going badly, if there's a bit of difficulty, if there's a bit of trouble. And that's important because sometimes in the church we can give the impression that when you become a Christian, when you place your trust in Jesus, what happens is you pass from a life of challenge and difficulty and, and like confusion into a life of perfect clarity and understanding, of joy and peace, where no one is ever upset with you. You never face disappointment or difficulty. You never face a misunderstanding or a fallout. Everyone always loves you all of the time, whatever you do, and you spend your whole Christian life basically skipping through fields of flowers with your heart overflowing with peace and joy, high-fiving people, baristas, anyone on the street. You're just so happy to live. It's just not true. We know it's not true. We mustn't pretend it's true. When you become a Christian, you don't put on rose-tinted glasses that make you think everything is awesome all the time. Go around saying, it's amazing, it's amazing, it's amazing. When you become a Christian, you don't put on rose-tinted specs. You take off blinkers. And you suddenly see in a whole new way that there is a battle that plays out over our world, over our cities, over people. A battle between good and evil. And we pray in the Lord's Prayer, we pray your kingdom come. And God's kingdom is coming and advancing and growing. But as the kingdom of light advances, it doesn't do so into neutral ground, it does so into contested ground. And there's another kingdom, a kingdom of darkness, that fights back and pushes back. Sometimes we think of life as being like, oh, I had a season of blessing and then a season of battle. It doesn't really work that way. Because the very blessing that God wants to give you and release through you is often contested. Actually, no blessing goes uncontested. Because whatever God's kingdom advances, it does so into contested ground. And when you become a Christian, you step onto the field of play in a whole new way. Just want to acknowledge uh, that talking about evil 
and the evil one and the devil in Oxford, central Oxford in 2023 might feel like a bit of an awkward thing to do. And uh, you might be sitting there thinking, whoa, steady on. Like, this is a bit medieval. You might be sitting there thinking, look, I've just about come to a belief in God. And now you're saying there's someone else I have to believe in. But I didn't sign up for that. So interesting. Andrew Del Bonco, who's a writer based in New York, liberal, uh, secular writer, wrote a book called The Death of Satan. And he says this. He says, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources we have to cope with it. He says, we've jettisoned the idea of cosmic evil, supernatural evil. We don't believe in it. We don't even like to use the word evil because it implies moral absolutes and value judgments. But it gets harder and harder to say there's no such thing as evil. Look around. Look at what's happening in our world. We don't have the intellectual, the social, the emotional, the philosophical resources to counteract what is at play in our world without using the word evil. I find it fascinating, even in popular culture, even as we kind of squeeze the idea of supernatural evil out from our consciousness, at the same time, people are fascinated by it. There's more films about evil, more popular culture about evil than ever before I can remember. There's kind of, even, even subconsciously, we're aware there's something there that we have to engage with, be aware of. In my experience, there are two dangers when you come into this area. You know, someone starts talking about the devil and evil, and the first danger is you think, ah, now my life makes perfect sense. Like that guy who cheated on me, that was the devil. You know, that, that, that ex, that was evil. You know, that, that difficult co-worker who I find, you know, really challenging and annoys me, that's something to do with the devil. You know, oh, I, I couldn't find a car parking space yesterday. That's probably the devil. Oh, there was a traffic jam. Yeah, that's probably evil in my life. And you start attributing everything to evil. And, um, oh, I had a fallout with that person at work the other day. Well, that, that's probably the devil's fault. And uh, just allow for a second the possibility that every now and again you might be a difficult person. <laughs> Not everything that happens in your life is a result of the influence of the evil one. But the opposite danger is just as real. And that's to go through your life thinking that there's no such thing as evil and that the evil one might not have an interest in influencing this world for harm. And that's just as dangerous. When I uh, first started working as a barrister, I was 22 years old and I looked about 16. And it's difficult when you first start working as a barrister because it basically feels like you're being pushed into the deep end of a swimming pool again and again, day after day after day, and being asked to swim. And you don't know how to swim. You've got to learn how to swim yourself. And you know, they're basically just testing you to see, will you like, float or swim or you just drown? And they just do that again and again and again for about a year. And uh, so, so you have these difficult days at court where you're not sure what's happening, what's going on, you're a bit confused. And I came back from one of these difficult days and I was chatting to a colleague. And I was like, oh, it's such a difficult day. Very senior colleague. And he said, how bad was it? And I told him, he said, that's nothing. He said, I can tell you about a time I was your age. He said he was in 
the office and they put a call out. They needed a barrister to rush to court straight away because someone hadn't turned up for a case. And the clerk said to him, look, it's, 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 a murder, it's a capital murder case. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, someone's at risk of getting the death penalty. So he was like, what, the death penalty? What, we don't have the death penalty in this country. He says, well, the client's a dog. Uh, it's like, it's, you know, it's better than someone. It's at risk of being put down. Can you just go and try and get it not put down? He's like, okay. So he rushes off to Campbell Green, rides to court. He's, all he's got is a post-it note with the name of the client, a few details. He turns up, he walks in, he goes up sees the client outside the court, his heart sinks a bit because the client is massive and looks like a bruiser. He's like, oh, this is going to be a bit trickier. The client's really angry with him because he's late. He's just trying to take out some details. The court's about to sit. He has to rush into court. He rushes into court just as the judge is coming in. He has to stand up and give his plea and mitigation for why this dog should not be put down. He says, Your Honour, this case is about a dog. <laughs> and that dog has a name. And its name is Stan. Yes, Stan, not one of those horrible, vicious names you come across in life, monster or venom. No, Stan is a family dog. And at this point, his client is tugging him on his jacket, but clients rarely have anything interesting to say, so he just kind of brushes him off and carries on. He says, Stan is a family dog. And, and you know, Stan, and there's a lot in a name. Stan has been a member of this family for a number of years and, and never acted aggressively towards any of the children's families. Clients tug, like, and, and he not only that, but Stan is an upstanding member of the community. He's often found playing in the park near the house, plays with children from other families, never attacked one of those clients. And, and, he's, and Stan is a, a, he's, he's a dog of previous good character. He's never attacked anyone else before. And at this moment, the tugging just gets too much. So he turns around and looks at the client. He says, what is it? And the client, loud enough for everyone to hear, goes, he's not called Stan. He's called Satan. There's no way back from that, really. Um, <laughs> Satan was put down, you know, just was. And, uh, and when you hear the name, when he told me that story, I was thinking, he's named, he who should not be named. It's like Voldemort and Harry Potter. You said the name, you're not supposed to say the name. I felt this like fear rise up within me. Don't be naive, but don't be afraid. Satan's been put down. He's been thrown down. He's been stripped of his power and his authority. He might snarl and gripe for a season. But Jesus has overcome evil. Don't be surprised, though, that you might face a test. But the second thing we see here is know the tactics. Now, it's, it's said that the enemy, the devil, doesn't attack with wounds in the flesh. He attacks with lies in the heart and lies in the mind. And generally speaking, there are two ways that the devil attacks and one is in temptation. When the devil is tempting you in temptation, the devil often hides God's holiness. So he says, you know, just do it. Fulfill your desires. You do you. Do whatever you want. What's it matter? God's like a giant cosmic teddy bear. He doesn't care. He'll always forgive you. The good God will always forgive me. That's his job. So don't worry about it. Just go. Just do whatever you want. Live your life kind of hides God's holiness. But then when you do do it, when you do give in to the temptation, the devil hides God's love. He says, what? What have you done? You've let yourself down. you let God down. you let everyone down. You can't go to church now. They wouldn't want you in the building. You sit there. People around you knew what you'd done, half of what you'd done. They wouldn't want to speak to you. Stay away. Stay away from God. Stay away from everyone else. You've blown it. You're sullied it. Generally speaking, the devil is either hiding God's holiness from you 
or hiding God's love from you. He wants to undermine your relationship with your heavenly Father and to destroy your trust in him. And we see here three ways that he tries to tempt Jesus. I find this passage amazing. Because Jesus doesn't mind talking about evil. He talks about the evil one in the context of the Lord's Prayer. The only reason we have this passage from Matthew 4 in the Bible, I mean, who was in the wilderness? Jesus and the devil. Who do you think told the story? It wasn't the devil. So this story comes directly from the lips of Jesus. It's Jesus saying exactly what happened when he was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. That means you have a first-hand account of the tactics the devil uses and a first-hand account of how Jesus came against those tactics. It's gold dust right there in Matthew's gospel. So what does the devil do? Firstly, he attacks uh, get, tries to tempt Jesus through satisfaction. He approaches Jesus when he's hungry, when he's weak, when he's been fasting for 40 days. If the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And the devil isn't questioning Jesus' identity. He knows who Jesus is. Jesus knows who Jesus is. He's trying to get him to presume on his identity and undermine his relationship with his Father. You don't need to fast. You don't need to be obedient to your Father. You don't need to pursue him. You're his son. Do whatever you want. Live at large. What are you doing in this desert? On your own with no food. Make food happen. Don't, your father's let you down. He hasn't provided for you in this context. So you provide for you. And the devil's so cunning. He doesn't kind of turn up in a club with a row of tequila shots. Say, want a big night out? like just bread just make bread you know and at this time bread was considered good I know now it's like you live off kale smoothies and cashew nuts but in this time bread was considered good and healthy a good thing but sometimes you can be tempted to put a good thing before the best thing it's like the temptation that says well I can get all the things I want by myself I can satisfy all my desires by myself and actually the things I want will satisfy me I don't need my father to help with that and Jesus refutes him with scripture. When Jesus is te tested, it's words of scripture that come to his lips. When he's tempted by the enemy, scripture is the first thing that's found on his lips. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I find it fascinating. Just a little while later, he tells the disciples, pray, give us today our daily bread. Then the second test is status. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. He'll command his angels concerning you and you wouldn't strike your foot against a stone. The devil uses scripture. Jesus uses scripture. So the devil goes, well, I can do that. I'll use scripture. See, the devil knows the Bible. He hates the truth of it, but he's happy to twist its words. If you're the son of God, then you know, just, just act in a dramatic way. Prove to everyone your identity. And God will protect you. He'll look after you. But do something dramatic to demonstrate what you claim. Sometimes we think too much what people think about us. And one of my failings as a human being, and I have many, is that I'm a bit of a people pleaser. I find it hard disappointing people. I find it hard letting people down. I want people to be happy. So there's been times in my life where I've been so tempted to go with the crowd. You know, to kind of do something just to please a boss at work. Or when you're out on a night out, to just go with the crew and follow that way. 
And it's been almost like a check in me. It's like, oh, am I just trying to please these people? Am I trying to please that boss? Am I trying to please that person I'm working with? Or do I actually care about pleasing my heavenly father? And a number of times, many times, I've gone the other way. I've been like, no, actually, I care too much about it. I'm sure it'll be all right. I'll, I'll just go this way. And I have to remind myself, look, whose opinion matters? The devil's trying to tempt Jesus to do something dramatic, to, to, to kind of impress everyone else. But he doesn't have to impress his father. He doesn't have to please him in that way. That's not going to please him. And Jesus responds. You know, he says, do not test the Lord your God. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when you think about it, it's crazy anyway, because you know what? It sounds plausible. If this, then that. The devil sets up. You know, if you're this, then do that. It's obvious. When you scratch something surface, you're like, what? If you're the Son of God, jump from a building. That's not what the Son of God does. That's not what it means to be the Son of God. Jump off a building. But it sounds so plausible in the moment. And then the third test we see here is uh, the test of success. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you if you'll bow down and worship me. And I think this is the most cunning of all. Because the devil offers to Jesus something which Jesus knows is his inheritance. He knows he's going to inherit the kingdoms of the world. He knows he's the king of all kings. He knows he's going to rule and reign this world and this universe. But the devil offers it to him in the wrong way at the wrong time by an apparently easy route. Looks like there's no cost. But he's hiding the cost. The devil is offering to Jesus the kingdom without the cross. The way Jesus took the throne mattered. Just want to say to you as your pastor, beware of influence that is offered to you that doesn't cost you anything. It's hard to steward well what you haven't suffered for. There was a way Jesus was going to take the throne and it was going to cost him everything in order that he might be able to accomplish everything his father wanted him to do. You know, Jesus didn't do dodgy deals to try and build influence for himself, to try and amass influence for himself. He poured out his influence for others. He surrendered it and he focused on worshipping his father. Worship the Lord and serve him only. Jesus' aim was to glorify his father and at the start of the prayer he taught us, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be glorified. And the enemy will tempt you to satisfy your desires, to try and Act on the basis of your status to try and build success for yourself. Seek God's kingdom first. Remember, ultimately, the enemy can't stop you getting what the Father wants for you. He can't ultimately destroy God's purposes for your life. So how do we respond? You know, we, we don't want to be naive. We, don't, we want to be aware that we're going to face tests and trouble. We're, we want to be aware of the, the enemy's tactics. So how do we respond to that? Well, when you're in times of testing, it feels like it's never going to end. I have been through times of testing. I can tell you, it feels like it's never going to end. It's tough. It feels like you're being kicked from pillar to post. 
It feels like you're fighting a battle just to get through every day. It feels like the enemy has the upper hand and he's wreaking havoc in your life. And I tell you, I know who that feels. And if you feel that way tonight, you're definitely not on your own. One of the things about going through a time of testing is you feel on your own. You feel like no one else feels this way. But just read 10 biographies of people who God has used in this world and they'll be open and honest and say, yeah, yeah, I have had seasons like that. When I was uh, just about to stop being a barrister, Beth and I took a holiday uh, to Tanzania. I love going around wildlife. I thought, while I still had some money, um, we'd go on safari. So uh, we, we went on safari, the Salu Game Reserve. It was amazing. You kind of, we saw some zebras. Zebras have much shorter legs in real life than you imagine. And, um, and we saw some giraffes. They have much longer legs in real life. Than you. And uh, we saw some hippos, and we saw some lots of other amazing things. And then some crocodiles and various things. And then we, we turned a corner in our kind of little jeep, and suddenly it broke quite suddenly. And we realized that we were surrounded by a pride of lions. There were 13 lions all around our jeep. And I was suddenly very conscious of the fact that our, our jeep didn't have a roof, and it didn't have walls. It was like just us in our seats and wheels. And, uh, and that didn't feel entirely safe. And I leaned forward. We had an amazing guide called Moses not the actual Moses, but, uh, but he, and he, you know, very experienced guy. And I said, Moses, are we, are we good? Because uh, a lot of lions right around us. He, he was like, I think they've eaten. I was like, you think they've eaten? Like, he said, yeah, I think, I think they've eaten. Anyway, so then one of them stood up and started, uh, started kind of prowling around us, a bit intimidating. And he was only about two meters away from the jeep. And I was like, are you sure this is okay? Because at that stage, the kind of flight or fight uh, instinct kicks in, and I wasn't really going to fight 13 lions, so I, flight was definitely on my thing, and I said, Moses, you just right, and then another one, up, there were three eventually up, started prowling around and growling, if you hear a lion growl next to you, it's scary, and Moses was completely chilled, he's like, Stephen, if, if you stay in here with me, you're good, if you run, you're dead, I said, okay, <laughs> and the thing was, after about 20 minutes, they got a bit bored and went off somewhere else. It was amazing. It was hugely exciting, as well as completely terrifying. You know, there are times in life when the enemy prowls around you. It says in 1 Peter, like a roaring lion. And he'll snarl, and he'll growl, and he'll try and put fear into the core of your being. But if Jesus is there with you, and I tell you tonight, he is, you don't have anything to fear. He can't actually harm you. He can't destroy you. You've been bought at a price. You're not your own. You're God's. He's claimed you. You're his. It's like hands off. So if you feel like the enemy is prowling around tonight, don't be afraid. Sometimes we think, and I think films play into this, we think about the battle between evil and good as being between two equal opposing forces. And it's like, who's going to win? That is not the case. It's not like, in the red corner, we have the devil. And in the blue corner, we have Jesus. What's going to happen? It's not like that at all. In the slightest, that's not it. Jesus has conquered evil. He has stripped the devil of his power and authority. He has neutered him. He has thrown him down. He has vanquished him. 
And there's just a bit of mopping up that needs to be done. Now, he can still snarl. He can cause havoc. He can still cause trouble in this world. But it's not an equal fight. Jesus has conquered evil. He has defeated Satan. It's done on the cross. So you don't have to fear. So when you respond, you can respond with courage. And the first thing to do is to speak truth. The enemy lies, so respond with truth. And in life, when you're going through a testing time, if you just listen to your heart, you'll be in trouble. Because it's great to listen to your heart. It's great to pour out your trouble. It's great to let it all out. But when you're going through a testing time, you'll be up and down like a roller coaster if you just listen to your heart. You also have to speak to your heart. You have to find some scriptures that encourage you and preach them to your heart. You have to, I'd encourage you, read a gospel slowly. Read one of the accounts of Jesus' life. Read Acts slowly. See just how much opposition is part of the normal Christian life and how God can turn even what is intended for harm, for good, and for the saving of many lives. Jesus, Henry Blosher says, Jesus is like the ultimate judo. He's just amazing at judo. Like martial artist extraordinaire. The enemy comes and tries to attack you. Jesus steps in the way. I'll handle this. And just throws the enemy's attacks and manages to twist them and to turn them against the very purpose for which they're intended. So the enemy comes at you with one thing and, and, and Jesus just flips it and turns it for your good and for the saving of many lives. It's extraordinary. There's nothing the devil can attack you with that Jesus can't flip to undermine the very purposes of the attack in your life. Remind yourself of that truth. Listen to the Bible. Remind yourself of who God is. Remind him of his char- yourself of his character. When you can't trace his hand at work in your life, you can trust his heart, trust his goodness. And then worship him. Worship the Lord and serve him, Jesus says. That, that's the songs we sing. This is the day the Lord's have made. There'll be times you'll wake up thinking, I want to sing. There'll be times you won't want to wake up. And the decision to offer a sacrifice of praise in those circumstances, I think is one of the most powerful things you can do in terms of worship. I think it has a really significant impact in the spiritual realm. When you say, yeah, it's all a mess. Yeah, my life is on fire. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I'm holding on my fingertips, but I'm not going to miss this chance to bring you praise. I'm going to worship in spite of my circumstances, not because of them, because I still trust you. Even if everything else feels like it's upside down. And even you walking faithfully with Jesus when everything else feels like it's gone to pot is I think one of the most powerful acts of worship you can bring in your entire life I'm convinced it's precious to the heart of God when you say well everything's gone wrong I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stop trusting in you Jesus forsaking all I trust in him that's faith and then ask for help you know, this prayer is designed to be prayed corporately. Our Father, forgive us our sins. Deliver us from evil. So I just want to encourage you, if you're walking through a time of trouble at the moment, please don't do it on your own. Find some people. You know, join a group. Get a mentor. Find some people you can pray with and talk about it with. But also pray to God. Tell him what you need. Bring your request to him. God, I need your help. God, you need to protect me. God, you need to help me. God, you need to strengthen me. God, I'm not sure how much more I can take. Help. God, it feels like the enemy is having a field day in my life. Help. Father, would you rescue me? Father, would you restore me? Father, would you 
save me. Father, would you deliver me from evil? You might be facing a health condition. Lord, would you deliver me from evil? Lord, you might be facing an incredibly challenging situation in your workplace. Father, would you deliver me? might be your peace of mind is being attacked. Father, would you deliver me? might be it feels like your community is under assault. Father, would you deliver me? might be that you're just overwhelmed by the forces that play in our world and you've lost your sense of hope for what might happen in the future. Father, would you deliver us from evil? That's a prayer he loves to, pray, loves to hear. Jesus prays that with you. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. He's been there. Jesus knows what it's like to face the worst evil has to throw at us and to stare it right back and to take it on and to take it in and to destroy it and to throw it down so you might never need to fear it. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and we're going to pray.